Please grab your Bibles as we behold God's living word today, and we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. That's page 954. If you're a guest with us, we are currently going through a series called The Body of Christ, which is uh, pointing to the church and what the church is, the functions of the church and what the church is responsible for. And today we will be covering care for the body as we're hitting these different elements of what the Bible says about the church. Today we're going to address care of the body. Before we get into that, I do want to remind all of us, including my own self as I preach the gospel to myself, that we are all sinners, every single one of us, and we've been saved by grace through faith. We've been justified by grace through faith alone, and that's in Christ alone. Uh, Our works... Our own filthy rags do not save us. We have no righteousness apart from Christ. And so we need to remember that as we trickle into a sermon text like 1 Corinthians 5. We we need to remember that Christ alone is our righteousness. But we also need to remember that Faith that works is never alone, as one theologian said. He has given us his spirit to convict us, to reveal sin to us. He's given us his people to walk out our salvations in fear and trembling together. This is the way he has designed his body to work, and it's for our good, and we need to remember that. There is no version of Christianity in the scriptures that describes a just believe in you're saved. You have to deal with sin. You have to deal with sin once and for all, which Christ paid for, and then we continually deal with sin in our own lives, and then we also deal with sin in the body. The scriptures always point to this. There's nothing in scripture that just said, all you have to do is believe that Jesus died. There's there's more to it. And, And a passage like this kind of helps us understand what the Christian life is all about. How we respond to sin and how we respond to the sin of others reveals a whole lot about our actual beliefs, about what we actually believe the gospel to be, how we actually interpret the scriptures, okay? So when we look at a passage like this, we need to remember the grace of Christ and we need to see it as God's kind provision for us as the body. So I would encourage you just to pastor you for a moment. Would you rest in that remembrance as we trickle in to this? One of the great joys of my life is walking in Christian community with you and with others that are not a part of this body in my past. Some of the great joys has been uh, walking with people who have told me where I am in sin 
showing me. Some of you are in this room. Uh, showing me where uh, the air of my way is. One of the great joys of being a pastor, as well as just simply being a Christian, is pointing people back to Christ for healing, for the forgiveness of sins, uh, for, for righteousness' sake, resting in the gospel of Christ. So as we get into this sermon, the care for the body, uh, I want us to remember that. Now, today I have three aims for us that I hope are accomplished for the sake of our church uh, and our faithfulness to the Holy Scriptures. Uh, The first aim is this. I want us to recognize that in God's church, dealing with sin is very important. I'm going to repeat that. Recognize that in God's church, dealing with sin is very important. This is God's further provision for us in the Christian life. This is his love for his people, his care for his people, is to actually have to address and deal with sin when it arises. Number two, congregation, you, we have a responsibility to address unrepentant sin. So sins that go unrepented, we have a responsibility to address that. And this is, in fact, loving and caring, uh, despite what popular opinion might be. This is in order to demonstrate that we actually love one another, and we're going to unpack this as the text unfolds. Despite it being very unpopular in our culture, addressing sin is in fact very loving. Uh, Number three, dealing with sin is meant to be a restorative practice. It is meant to be a restorative practice. That's the good news. There's hope in the midst of it. And uh, it's been used, it's been abused, and we're going to talk all about that, but it's meant to be a restorative practice. It's not meant to be harsh. It, It is hard, but it's not meant to be harsh, but rather rooted in love. So that's kind of the three aims for us today. And I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, over you as a congregation. So if you have your Bibles, look with me in verse 1, and I'll read it over you today. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man and his father's Uh, For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, Paul says. And And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. You, uh, do, you know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in... I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our main point today is simply this. The local church must do the caring work of dealing with the unrepentant sin in its members with the hope that they are to be restored to the body and saved in the day of the Lord. The local church must do the caring work of dealing with unrepentant sin in its members with the hope that they are restored to the body and saved in the day of the Lord. I recognize that 1 Corinthians 5 is extreme. And we're going to talk about all the cases that are also not extreme. But what I want us to see is that sin amongst the body must be dealt with. And this is God's kind care for his people because we bear the name of Christ. And so wherever we go, we represent Christ to a dying world. And so we must deal with these things. Now, the context in 1 Corinthians 5 is the church is dealing with sin all inside of it. There are divisions about who to follow. There are uh, divisions about sin and how to treat sin and specifically The problem that has risen up mostly in the church is found right here in verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 actually tells us what the problem is. Now, I want to remind us that this letter is actually written to the church. It's not written to the elders. It's not written to apostolic delegates like Timothy and Titus. It's actually written to the church. So the church must listen to the instruction of Paul. Now, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So there was a man who had taken his father's wife. This is referring to his stepmother as the description depicts. And Paul is bringing this man's sin to attention, but he's doing so by rebuking the congregation. You see, in verse 1, they said, Paul said they are tolerating this man's sin. Now, in a pagan culture, uh, and, and excuse me, the pagan culture itself was not even tolerating this type of sin that was being allowed in the church. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Now, in a pagan culture, like our pagan culture today, the theme of tolerance had virtue. Just like it does today. The more tolerant you are, the more loving you are considered. Does that kind of ring a bell for us today? Kind of makes sense to us today. If you don't tolerate people's desires and demands, then you are canceled. That was the context of Corinthians. 
And it really resonates for where we are in our context for us today. Now, I want you to hear me. Tolerance is counterfeit love. Tolerance of sin is counterfeit love. Paul is rebuking the church for tolerating what God does not tolerate. Corinth was a pagan culture. And these people who are now a part of the church were once a part of that pagan culture. But there is a distinct line that Paul is talking about. Pagans who you are not a part of tolerate this type of sin. But as a part of the body of Christ, you are not to tolerate this type of sin. There are two people groups, pagans and those who are not pagans, church members and those who are not church members. I want us to see that. Now, for the rest of the passage, Paul lays forward for us three responsibilities that the church has to care for this brother who is caught in sin. So we're going to just unpack the text this morning, and then we're going to close with some applications for us as a body. Okay, so that's how the, the kind of the layout of the day is going to go for us. The first responsibility that Paul lays forward is found in verses 1 through 5. And it's this, to remove the man from the congregation so that he may be restored. To remove the man from the congregation so that he may be restored. Now, look with me in verse 2. Paul says to them, are you arrogant Ought you not rather to mourn? The Corinthians were arrogant about the sin that was taking place in the body of Christ. He says down in verse 6 that they were boasting in it. And Paul says that is the improper response towards sin. The proper response is to mourn sin. The right posture is to make sure that you recognize where sin is and to grieve over sin. Because sin is a big deal. Sin is destructive. Sin causes divisions in the body. Uh, Paul, in fact, is not as surprised by the man's sin as he knows that men and women sin. But he's more surprised by the response of the congregation who is tolerating the sin. Who is not rebuking the man in his sin, but rather boasting in it. It might catch us off guard that they were boasting in the sin, uh, but that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, even apathy being one of them because it's not, they're not dealing with the sin. But I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying their response ought to have been, and that is to mourn. Beloved, do we mourn sin? Do we mourn our own sin? Do we mourn sin that occurs in the body, because all sin is committed against God, a holy and righteous God. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 4.30 says. Sin is a big deal, and it's a big deal for each of us. So Paul is fretting over the fact that the church has not responded to sin the way that he would have discipled them to respond to sin. Now look with me in verse 2, which is where we get that first point. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
The man was to be removed from the congregation because he was unrepentant of the sin. That means he was living in the sin, tolerating him, his sin himself. In fact, preferring him, his sin over the gospel of Christ itself. He was not living a life in the confession of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying, remove him. And this again reveals that distinct line between remove him from among you, as it says there in verse 2. Remove him from among who? That's from the church. There are no blurry lines. And the qualifier here is the fact that he was unrepentant. He was living this out amongst the body, and the body was tolerating it. Now, for context purposes, look with me in verse 3. He says, though I am absent in body, so Paul was not with them and had no plans to come to them. He said, I am with you in spirit. I am present in spirit. And as if present in spirit, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. So Paul was not with him, but he was giving out his judgment to the congregation saying, this is what you need to do. He needs to be removed from the body. This has been determined by me, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. This is what you ought to do. And he even gives instruction, verse 4, of when they are to do this. Look with me. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, that means his teaching, his conviction, his instruction, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh. So when the congregation assembles, Paul is saying, and you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when my spirit is present with you, congregation, you have a huge responsibility, saying this to the Corinthian church, to deliver this man over to Satan. Now, have you ever thought about how heavy a statement that is? You are to deliver him to Satan. That means you are to remove him from among you. There are two kingdoms that Paul is thinking about here. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And if he is living in this way, you are to remove him from the kingdom of light and you are to place him back in the kingdom of darkness. This is what Paul is instructing them to do. He's not instructing the pastors. He's not instructing the elders. He's instructing the congregation. Now, I get it. This might sound very challenging to our coddled modern ears. I really do. And it was really hard to study it this week, thinking about talking about this in front of you. But what God has called me to do is to talk about these things and to, and to help us bring awareness to what the scriptures actually say. But I don't want us in the challenge of it to miss that this is in step with the teaching of Christ himself. And it's in step with Paul's teaching elsewhere. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18, which you guys, before I got here, you had like 86 weeks of the book of Matthew. So I really hope you remember this. <laughs> but he says, if somebody has sinned, you go to them and you address them. And if they don't repent, you bring another brother or another two with you and if they don't repent still you bring them before the church and if they don't repent still Jesus says you remove them and you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector so this is in step with what Jesus himself has taught 
Paul says elsewhere, I have delivered over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. So scripture helps us to interpret scripture. This is where we have to trust that scripture is informing us, the body, to hold on to something, to listen up and to remember what his word says. Now, we recognize that this is the extreme form of what is called church discipline, or as we're calling it today, church care, because that's ultimately what it really is. But there's tons of ways that we are disciplined throughout our body. This is called formative care. Every time a sermon is preached, every time a D group meets, every time you're talking to your spouse and you have to ask for forgiveness or sin is called out, that's called formative care. We're constantly discipling ourselves. We're constantly rebuking and admonishing one another, even gently, even with general words at times, to help us all remember what the gospel says, to remember how desperately we need Christ. Because so often the sin in our heart flares up and we need to be reminded. This happens everywhere and it's happening now in this extreme case. Now, I do want to make a qualifier. Just because the brother or sister is being removed from the congregation, that does not mean that they are not a Christian. It does not mean that they are forsaken forever. Uh, What it means is that the body cannot with confidence, like a, a vote of confidence say they are trusting Christ. Uh, they're not holding to the Christ that has saved them. Um, uh, th- th- they are preferring their sin over the one who has saved them from sin. And, th- and that's a big difference. We, we cannot approve their lifestyle, so we are uncertain about their confession. And that's important because we ultimately know that we're not the ones who determine who it is that has entered into the kingdom of God by faith. That is the responsibility of one judge, and his name is Jesus. But we, but we are to recognize when faith is being lived out and to affirm it, and then when faith is not being lived out and to address it. Now, I want us to see verse 5. It's really important. If you, if, you, if you leave the sermon only through verse 4 and you leave, then there's no hope. But look at verse 5. This is the whole point of it. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose in verse 5 is so that this brother's soul is restored to Christ that he is found righteous on the day of Christ, that he has taken his own sin before the Lord and recognized he needed a savior. This is the whole point. The church is saying, go and deal with your sin. Repent of your sin. Find, your, um, uh, find recognition of where it is that you have betrayed the Lord and have not trusted in him. This is what it looks like to be turned over to Satan, and I know it sounds tough, but it's incredibly loving if done rightly. It's incredibly loving if done rightly. We are all called to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians thirteen five: Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. This is a part of the Christian life. Are we believing continually the things of God? Uh, all of you have once been children. 
um, some of you have children, all of us know what time out is, right? In a sense, you address a child who is not behaving appropriately inside of a fellowship, and you isolate the child, and you make them what? You make them think about what it is that they're doing or what it is that they've done. The whole point of time out is to get them thinking through the decisions that they've made and to rightly reset so that they can enjoy the fellowship. That's exactly what this is, but in a much greater and spiritual manner. This is a, lo- a loving act. If we just let the child continue to run amok, it's going to cause havoc for the whole fellowship. But there is grace and love that is driving this. Let's not fear the idea of loving and caring for a brother or a sister who is stuck in sin and is unaware of it or unrepentant no matter what it costs us. The second responsibility I want us to see is uh, to keep sin from growing in the body. This is verses six through eight. So the man's sin was one issue, but the greater sin was the impurity of the church. Paul was zealous about making sure that the church was kept unstained, was kept pure. Look with me in verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, uh, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you're probably asking yourself first, what is leaven? Well, it's a popular uh, replacement for yeast. I know we have a lot of bed breakers, uh, uh, bread break, uh, bakers in our congregation. So uh, you kind of know what I'm talking about in terms of yeast. But typically, it's an old piece of dough that had the capacity to ferment over time. And this fermentation was a chemical change. And the chemical change would in, impact a new batch. Ultimately, it could become dangerous to the new batch of dough or even poisonous to the new batch of dough. And he's saying, get rid of the leaven. Now, he is drawing this on imagery from the Passover. Now, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 uh, states, as they're setting up the Passover meal, God says, make sure, uh, through Moses, he says, make sure that you have no leaven in your house Day one through day seven is you're partaking in the Passover. He says, uh, if you partake in leaven during the Passover, you are cut off from Israel. That's what it says in Exodus chapter 12. And Paul is bringing that up. And we know this because of what it says in verse seven. He reminds them that they are to be a new batch or a new lump. And he says, as you really are. Well, how is the church really unleavened bread? Well, verse 7 tells us, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the new leaven uh, of sincerity and truth. Paul points them back to Christ here. There's no reason to participate in the sin that you have used to participate in. Remember who you are and act 
Act in that way, the new life that you now have in Christ who is your Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb who took away the sin of the world. And if you have painted the doorway at the doorpost of your heart with the blood of Christ, you are saved and your sin is passed over. And he says, church, this is who you are. There's no reason then to act as if you are not this way. Paul is very mindful that sin can grow. And sin can grow quickly if it's not addressed. You guys remember when you first heard the clippings of the coronavirus all the way in Japan or China. It was like, what does that have to do with me at first? It, it seems so far away. Well, that virus has ransacked the world twice over. I've had it twice and many of you have had it many times. Things grow and things grow quickly and sin is one of those things. It spreads if it's not addressed. And Paul is encouraging the body to not let the sin grow as they had. Their tolerance had allowed the sin to grow. Now, the third responsibility the church has is to judge those inside the church, not those outside the church. This is verses 9 through 13. Now, look with me in verse 9. Paul had already written a letter to them. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul wrote actually four letters to the Corinthians. This letter is the second 1 Corinthians uh, to the people. He had already written to them not to, to associate with sexually immoral people. But in this letter, he is giving a clarifying statement, and that clarifying statement is in verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since that would mean that you need to go out of the world, Paul is saying. So he's clarifying what it is that he meant. Now remember, the, the, the greedy, the sinful, the idolater, the sexually immoral, that is the target for the church. This is how we fill, fulfill the Great Commission. We take the gospel to those that need it. Uh, so he's not talking about not associating with them. Uh, but he's talking about, he clarifies this in uh, verse 11, because they had misunderstood or misinterpreted Larry. He says, but I am telling you, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. But then he goes on, or greed, or idolatry, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He does not have the lost world in mind in verse 11, but he has brother in mind, those who bear the name of Christ in mind. I want us to think about that. And not just this man who's in sexual immorality, but anyone who is stuck in sin in their greed or their idolatry or their reviling or their drunkenness and not even to eat with such a one. And that, that sounds harsh, but... What he's doing is he's wanting to protect the church from their influence if they are, in fact, unrepentant. He later says in chapter 15, verse 33, he uses a, a, a line out of the pagan playbook, that bad company corrupts good character. That's what he's saying. We don't associate with them. But Paul is worried about what's going on inside the church. Look with me in verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? They don't 
He's not pretending that those outside the church are Christians or that the Spirit is convicting them over their sin or they're supposed to be behaving in a way that is Christian. That's not what he, he knows that. God will take care of judgment there. What he's saying is, no, you take care of what's going on inside the church. That is your responsibility. You, congregation, he says to the Corinthians and to all churches, are supposed to judge those inside the church. And you're probably going, yeah, but it seems a little harsh. And we're going to unpack what that actually means. We are to represent the body of Christ everywhere. Or we represent Christ as the body everywhere we go. And so we want to address where sin is. Now, I do want to make a distinction. There's a difference between condemnation versus judgment. We're not saying that people are Christians or not Christians. That's Jesus' job. We've already talked about that. But Christians are responsible for making judgments all over the New Testament. We have discernment. We can know if people are bearing fruit. Those are judgments. There's a difference between a condemned house and then a house that needs to be restored, right? And our responsibility is to restore those who bear the name of brother. Now, remember in Matthew chapter 7, and a lot of you, are, that passage might be coming to your mind right now. Judge not lest you be judged. That's verse 1 of chapter 7. But down in verse 5, it says that you are, we are to deal with our sin. And he calls it by taking the log out of our own eyes. Uh, dealing with our sin personally. And then he says in verse 5, then deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. He, he never says, Jesus never says not to deal with sin. He just says you have to deal with your own sin first. And this is really super important when we have this in context. So if those who are unrepentant, he said, purge those evil from among you. But the whole point is to deal with sin that is from amongst us. Now, I have really good news regarding this brother who was caught in sin. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a few pages over. We see in verse 6 of chapter 2, and this is heavily um, uh, believed upon by most scholarship, that he's now talking about the same man that they were dealing with who was caught in sexual immorality. He says, for, uh, he's referring to the man, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For, for such a one, this punishment may be, uh, by the majority, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, Paul says, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This man who was caught in sexual sin had found it in his isolation before the Lord to turn from his sin and to come back to the church. And we know this because it says to forgive the man, which means he's asking for forgiveness it means he recognizes his sin before God and then he's bringing it to them. And, and now he's saying, hey, church, don't be too severe in your discipline of him. 
which is really interesting. They, were, they weren't disciplining him at all. In fact, they were tolerant of the sin. Uh, this had led to, to accepting the sin that he was guilty of. And now, after Paul's instruction, they're being too harsh not to bring him back. I want us to see that. No, he's saying, no, no, no. If he confesses his sin, you bring him back into the body. So the point that Paul was trying to get apart uh, across in the first letter to the Corinthians has proven to work in the second letter to the Corinthians. There's hope there. There's a, there's a point here. There's, this process works. God's word works. Now, there's some responses for the body that I want us to consider today, and we'll unpack these. One, I want to address the objections of this type of care, this type of care that forces us to get into people's lives. One, one of the objections, objections perhaps the most um, noticeable objection, is addressing sin would be considered unloving. Addressing sin would be considered unloving. And I want to just say this, no, it is loving. It is loving. Hebrews 11 uh, God disciplines those whom he loves. This is the character of our God. Proverbs 13, 24 says, if you spare the rod, then you hate your son. Discipline is meant to be a loving corrective, meant for restoration, meant for care, meant for progress. In fact, it's actually unloving not to address sin in another It is unloving not to address sin in a lover. Uh, In fact, if you say that you love someone and you are unwilling to address their sin, the Bible would not recognize that type of love. Number two, addressing sin is considered legalistic. It can be legalistic if done the wrong way. But it doesn't have to be legalistic if it's done faithfully. Uh, Paul preaches against legalism in Colossians chapter two in the entire book of Galatians. Uh, Jesus himself uh, instructs the Pharisees in legalism. It's the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, yet he also admonishes Peter, James and John and Thomas. We see that this is not contradicting if it's done rightly. So when we think about the body of Christ, it's impossible for us not to consider the care we are to administer one to another. We see in Proverbs, better is an open rebuke than a hidden love. Uh, We see faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27. Jesus says in Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. This is constantly found throughout the scriptures, but there's something in us that just oftentimes does not want to do it. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The third objection, but aren't we all sinners? And the answer is absolutely yes. We are all sinners doing many things, James 3, 2 tells us. Uh, All deserving of death, the book of Romans tells us. And there are many things that will never get to the point of the type of sin that 1 Corinthians 5 talks about. 
things like greed and gossip as they're kind of popping up in us and their uh, lusts that dwell within us. That's why we constantly need the gospel of Christ to remind us of how to repent, where to turn to as we walk out this faith, wrestling out our faith with fear and trembling. We're gonna talk just momentarily about what it looks like to actually to address sin. But yes, all sin is within us. Some sin needs to be addressed, and we're going to talk through that. There's two warnings that I have for us as we think about this, two major warnings. One, the church can abuse this type of care, and maybe some of you have seen this. Uh, Maybe some of you have experienced this, Um, maybe you've heard stories from your grandparents or others in the church that the church was so heavy-handed that it was abusive. But if it's done in love and with a desire to see a brother or sister restored, then the posture is different. The posture is very different. So that's a warning. You can abuse this type of Uh, of care for another. The second way to abuse it is to abdicate from it, which is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They weren't even dealing with it. Uh, This can be done in both um, boasting in it, like the Corinthians were doing, or apathy. Uh, The Baptists have a long history of caring for members very, very well. And there's books out there that, if you're interested, shoot me an email, I'll send you some resources. But things began to change when consumerism of the 1920s and individualism uh, began to explode. This became uh, too much for people to deal with. I, I don't want people talking about my sin and I don't want to talk about any other people's sin. But that, that goes against what God's word tells us we are to do for one another. And this is where we have to trust the Lord rather than our own experiences or our own objections in our own minds. The word of God speaks to these things. Now, how do we do this? Last five minutes, how do we do this? Well, first we must deal with our own sin. First we must take ourselves to the foot of the cross. Uh, First we must deal with the log that's in our eye. We've got a giant log that is in the middle of our spectacles that we can't even see outside of until we go to the foot of the cross. I love what Piper says. He's, you know, People with giant logs in their eyes, when they swing their heads, they're like knocking people around, right? We all have sin. But when we take our sin to the foot of the cross, the Lord humbles us because he reminds us of our need for him. He is the champion of our hearts and reflects his mercy and grace to us yet again. Uh, He reminds us that this is our sin first and that we need to beat our breasts and ask for forgiveness. And this kind of shapes our heart. It postures us to then be able to go and confront a brother or a sister who is stuck in sin. So get the log out of your own eye so that we can deal with the speck that's in our brother's and our sister's eye. And when we go to a brother or a sister, here's some practices. Pray. Pray that we would have a genuine heart of love and care for a brother 
or a sister who is caught in sin. Two, choose an appropriate time to talk to them. Not in the middle of a heated argument, and this is just extra lesson for your marriage as well. But go and to address them specifically at an appropriate time. Always bring with you the word of God in a humble way as you sit before the throne of grace. Pointing to what the scriptures say and not to your own opinion because you might be wrong, but the word of God is never wrong. Confront confidently, right? This is before it gets to the place where it did in 1 Corinthians 5. We want to confront in confidentiality. We don't want uh, other people to know about this. We want to go and address sin personally. Two, if you confront people with sin, do what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, help restore them to a place of faithfulness, which means you also need to walk with them in accountability. Care for them in this way. A lot of times this happens in D groups and discipleship groups and one-on-one meetings and in your own marriage before it ever goes corporate. But this is where sin typically is snuffed out. We deal with our own sin first. We deal with the the sins of those that we interact with in small groups, one-on-one and in private. But if it's not dealt with there, if there is no repentance, we have to deal with it corporately. And this is to protect the flock. This is to protect the flock. And it's rooted in wanting the person to be restored. So there's care for the rest of the flock, making sure that sin does not spread. And there's also care for the one who is stuck in sin. I want to ask us a kind of investigatory question. If this sin in 1 Corinthians 5 occurred here at 1st Irving, let's say, how would we have handled it? What would that have looked like? I hope we would have been faithful. I hope we will be faithful if it occurs. If there is no, if someone is not in a good state before the Lord in repenting, I hope that we would do this faithfully. Quickly, why do we do this? We do this to love our brother and sister, as I've said. Two, we do this to protect all sheep. Uh, um, A gentle admonishment uh, or or, or even an, an appeal for a brother or sister to be delivered over to Satan, if we're gonna be biblical, is meant to both protect them And it's actually meant to be mercy to you, the congregation, to see the implications and the dangers of sin. It's meant to be merciful to all involved. Uh, Number three, considering the less mature in the sheep, this is how we teach the dangers of sin to those who have just come to faith in Christ. Those who are new to the flock of God. Number four, why do we do this? Because we desire to show the world Christ's power of restoration. God is in the, in the business of redeeming people. Even those who are caught in sin, we're all caught in sin at times. How quickly are we willing to restore back to the fellowship that we have and enjoy with God himself? Number four, we have a responsibility to uphold the glorious name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, everywhere we go, we represent Christ as those who bear the name 
of brother and sister, brother and sister of Christ. And so how we deal with sin represents who God is to a world that is dying and lost. And this is why we do this. And then very lastly, what sin is to be addressed and when? That's a big question that you might have. Here's just a few categories that I could provide for you today. Ongoing sin. Sin that is taking up patterns in one's life. When one has consistently departed from the way of Christ in certain areas over and over again. And when it does, we go and address them one-on-one or one-on-two. So ongoing sin. Number two, disruptive sin. That sin that has disparaged a relationship or sown division amongst a relationship or it's beginning to sow seeds of discord and disunity in the body. That's when sin is addressed, when it begins to become disruptive to the overall health of the body. Like I recognize there's a lot of sins that aren't ever dealt with like this that we have to trust the, the grace of our Lord to remind us of the gospel so that we can repent and return to him. But this is ongoing sin and it's disruptive sin. And then finally, this is unrepentant sin. Those who are prizing their sin more than Christ, who are saying, no, I'm not guilty of that, or I prefer that sin over the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is when we address this within the body. We can't have a series of the body of Christ without dealing with sin, without dealing with how it is we are to care for one another. This is discipleship. This is a formative way we disciple one another, love one another, care for one another. This is the responsibility that we have. Guys, I need you to make sure that my soul is guarded. For my own soul's sake, for the sake of my wife, for the sake of my children, and you need the very same. You need the very same. Oftentimes we just go, man, I don't want to get into that. I'd rather not deal with those things. Because if I deal with that, he's got to deal with me. No, have your sin dealt with too. Have the courage to trust that the Lord wants to do new and fresh work in your heart. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity and a responsibility and a joy and a privilege to behold the Passover lamb this morning. Just as our text talks about, we get to be reminded that of the one who has died for us, who has taken sin upon the cross for us. So as we close, let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's set our mind on the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Father, thank you for your word. I, I do pray that it does work in our hearts today. This is your word, and let us not rewrite it. If we don't like it, Father, lead us to a place of understanding and repentance. Father, if we lack courage, would you give us courage? If we lack love, would you fill us with love? Father, all of these things are found perfectly in Christ, who is our Passover lamb. Let us draw our attention to him, Father, the author and finisher of our salvation, in whose name we pray. Amen.